Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and today I'm speaking with Deborah Vargas, author of Dissonant Divas in Chicana Music, The Limits of La Onda, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2012. Dr. Vargas is an associate professor in the Ethnic Studies Department at the University of California, Riverside. Professor Vargas' research, uh, her research and teaching interests include Chicano and Latino cultural studies, critical race feminisms, queer of color critique, popular culture, feminist ethnography, borderlands theory, and his oral history methods. Her book, her book, Dissonant Divas in Chicana Music, has received numerous awards and accolades, including the 2014 Best Book in Chicano Studies by the National Association of Chicano and Chicana Studies, the 2013 Honorable Mention for Best Book in Latino Studies by the Latin American Studies Association, and the the 2013 Woody Guthrie Prize for the Best Book in Popular Music Studies by the International Association for the Study of Popular Music. Hello, Deborah, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Oh, thanks, DJ. Thank you so much for the invitation um, to talk about the book and uh, just have a a conversation with you. I appreciate it. Great. Well, I'm just so glad that you're on and uh, I was wondering if you would, wouldn't mind by beginning our discussion today by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I will. Thank you so much. Um, so, yeah, I was, uh, you know, I'm uh, born and raised in, in South Texas on the west side of, of San Antonio. And um, my, my grandparents uh, came to South Texas from, from Mexico. So I'm Mexican-American, Mexican descent, Chicana. Um, and they arrived with some of my older aunts and uncles um, who were born in Mexico, and my parents, because they were on the sort of the other end of the the the, the children that were that were um, born to them were actually born um, in Texas. So my father um, and my mother are both um, Tejanos. Uh, my father born in Selma, and my mother um, in Sabinal, <clears throat> and. Um, you know, I have three brothers and, and, you know, we're raised by really hardworking parents who, I think like all other parents who don't have much of an opportunity at a formal education themselves, they're really invested in, in our education. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel as though sometimes, um, you know, that they, they definitely um, played a really important role, you know, in, in the ways in which we were sort of raised to really, you know, um, values, like I said, like, like all parents do, you know, sort of like the, the opportunities that, that they want to, to see in the children that they may not have had themselves. Um, I was also raised by, you know, of course, a bunch of cousins and grandparents and family, but also by a, a really great community um, of, of neighbors in our, in our community, Mexican-American and African-American neighbors. And, and I often, you know, when I speak about my childhood and my upbringing, I often refer to them really as my primary teachers, besides mm-hmm. the ones that I had in public schooling. And, and I say this because I think that when I arrived um, to college, you know, I didn't arrive with good writing skills or good reading skills, but I, I 
look back now and I think how well equipped I was um, because of them, because of this this community, it, it really comprehending what would later I would sort of like learn as formal theories around you know class disenfranchisement or what we call structural racism, right. um, things like domestic labor, et cetera. Right. So. Um, so I often kind of look back and I think about, um, although I didn't know it in the moment, it was a really valuable education that everyone, right, in this community sort of provided me with, along with my parents. Um, for, in terms of formal education, I, I attended the University of Texas in Austin, and I graduated from there. I was, again, very typical first-generation college student, and it was really the curriculum of ethnic studies, specifically. Right. Um, back then, they were centers or programs, now they're departments, but the centers of African-American studies and Mexican-American studies that mm-hmm. really sparked my initial desire, you know, to become a professor, and it was through these awesome professors that I had, you know, in a variety of courses that uh, they really, I think, sparked a, a desire in me to really want to research and write, you know, myself and to make, you know, try to contribute, right, new ways of thinking, new models, right. um, new narratives, new languages, et cetera. So, um, so I always feel like it's, it's, that was really important to have that curriculum um, as a college student. What I'm wondering that, it, you know, I hear that a lot from uh, those that we, we speak with on, on the channel, and, and it resonates very strongly with me as well. Uh, my experience uh, just in higher education when I was introduced to uh, what would be considered ethnic studies or Chicano Latino studies, whatever it may be, um, you know, in my my latter undergraduate years, it it really, it, you know, it really, guy, it it um, you know, it it struck me as something that I didn't hear, you know, much and didn't learn much, um, you know, I think throughout the rest of my education, but also it it really did motivate me, as as you mentioned, to pursue an academic career. So I I'm curious, before your experience with you know ethnic studies. Uh, had you? What was your idea as to what you do professionally? Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that's a good question. No, it, it's true. It's a very good question, and it's so interesting that still, even in my teaching today, you know, in, in the department that I'm in, um, I come across students um, that were like me. So, so when I first started university, you know, like I said, sort of going back to my parents, right? Sort of when you're sort of the first generation that that has an opportunity to go to college. Um, you know, if you're coming from a working class sort of background, then you're, you're thinking of college as sort of like, um, you know, a, a way to sort of advance in terms of social class, right? Mm-hmm. So I think for like a lot of first-generation students, and I see this still, college is really about how can you do better, right? How can you mm-hmm. get a better job? Mm-hmm. How can you mm-hmm. perhaps, if your parents, um, you know, work in, in a particular segment of, of labor that, is really physically strenuous, et cetera, right? Like you, you know, the desire is to sort of like create an easier life. And so I, I went to college in that way too, sort of like what what kind of major can I pick to, to sort of like have a better job and to have it a little bit easier than my parents had it, right? So mm-hmm. I was typical. I, I wanted to major in something like marketing, I think, or accounting, right? Something right. where I could get a good job because right. to me, college was about a job, right? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, and that, that was fine, but, you know, I wasn't very passionate about it, and I did okay, but it, it really didn't feed me in that way. And then as, as electives, you know, I, I got a chance to take a variety of different ethnic studies classes and history and literature, et cetera, and then that's when things sort of, like, came together for me, right? So, right. And I, I think yeah. that's still kind of a typical thing is you, mm-hmm. you see students sort of, like, seeing college naturally, right, as sort of, like, a way to sort of have a better 
you know, an economically more secure life, right, et cetera. Right. Maybe get a job with benefits, things like that. Right. And so that's still very much the reality. And, and for me, once I took these classes and it was sort of, that came together as, as sort of what I was referring to earlier. It was like, oh, okay, this is not only really relevant, but there's something really important happening in mm-hmm. the knowledge that I'm learning here and, and perhaps like maybe what I could do, right, right. Um, my future. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I know in, in regards to ethnic studies as well, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. But for me, um, you know, when I came across it, I, I had kind of, you know, I had I had a little bit of a different background, uh, more middle class. My parents were, you know, the uh, public school educators, administrators. So I was trying just not to screw up, right? You know, keep the ball rolling, <laughs> so to speak, but uh, try to, you know, perhaps uh, repeat what they did. But, um, you know, so I'd figured, you know, over some struggles whatnot, as to what I'd do in other attempts, that I'd, I'd go into, um, you know, higher education, and that, uh, you know, history really appealed to me. But, uh, you know, it was when I was, you know, introduced to ethnic studies curriculum that I was shocked that this was actually a, a um, you know, a valid uh, professional area of inquiry, right? It's It wasn't the history, it wasn't the stories that I had been, you know, taught and had to memorize and were, were examined on, right? And so mm-hmm. um, I, I can definitely, uh, you know, associate and, and uh, yeah. empathize too with that, uh, the kind of striking experience that uh, being introduced to this curriculum and, and type of scholarship has on yeah, one's life. Yeah, you know? yeah, and if, you know, and if students are open to it, um, mm-hmm. I think it can really unsettle their world in a good way. You know what I mean? I think that that's kind of what I remember is my world being very unsettled, you know, by what I was reading and sort of, um, you know, and so in that way it was a a very good um, way to kind of like rethink about what education meant, you know, for me at that age. And so I try to kind of remember that and hold on to that when I teach still. Right. Unsettling at the same time ringing true, right? Like ringing true with one's experience, um, to some extent, or at least uh, the maybe the 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 cultural experience of one's ancestors. That's kind of the experience that I had. Uh, it, it was very disrupting in the same way, but also it was to me it was uh, you know waking up and said, yeah, so much of this makes sense, and and this is part of you know history. This is scholarship and and whatnot. So, and I agree. You know, I, I see uh, I, whether you call it the click or the light bulb. I love seeing that happening mm-hmm. to students when you're teaching. Yeah. Uh, with the. Yeah. Yeah. The, the type of subject material we have. Uh, definitely, well, definitely. We hope, we hope, you know, we can right? as <laughs> we can yeah, in the classroom. But yeah, right. it is really wonderful when that happens, for sure. Well, I want us to start uh, talking about the book, of course. And um, there are a few things that I want to bring up, um, you know, when before we get into talking about the, some specific examples, <laughs> some of the concepts you introduced. But I wanted to give you a moment to briefly also just discuss how you came to write you know, this book, you know, this particular topic, um, you know, dis- dissonant divas in Chicana music. Yeah, well, you know, um, when I arrived uh, to grad school, I, I generally, and I attended graduate school, uh, I, I came through the sociology PhD program at the University of California in Santa Cruz. So um, when I began graduate school, you know, I began really, um, you know, wanting to ask questions about generally cultural production you know, narratives, um, a variety of different cultural texts, issues of social inequality, particularly um, focused on thinking about gender and sexuality. So those were kind of like the main areas that I had. And, you know, I was a a mid-1990s grad student, and so one of the, um, you know, events in our, in, you know, 
the Latino world that happened was was Selena's passing, right? Mm-hmm. And so this this happened while literally while I was in in the classroom taking seminars and um, and this was really, of course, now we know, right? Very pivotal moment and for a variety of different reasons, right? Um, but <clears throat> as someone who sort of grew up, mm, you know, familiar with the sounds of of you know Selena and other kinds of uh, Tex-Mex and Spanish language music, right, growing up, etc. Um, it was something that I, I was particularly interested in right away, you know. Um, and so, you know, I just became curious and I just started to kind of think about um, the broader context. I felt like the ways in which the media, um, both Spanish language and English language mainstream media were covering Selena was very... It, it there was it, you know it wasn't knowledgeable in in the sense of like really understanding mm-hmm. regional race relations you know in South Texas any of the history it was real ob- obvious that people didn't have a grasp you know this wasn't Los Angeles and it wasn't <clears throat> you know another um, you know city that that perhaps you know the histories are a bit more legible and people kind of understand there's more sort of an iconography right uh, mm-hmm. history things like music and so it was real obvious that people were were sort of, you know, kind of like having difficulty kind of making sense of who this young brown woman was, right, right. and why it was with us. And so that was really kind of like my lead-in um, to what would become, you know, the book. Uh, but, you know, the initial questions I had were just sort of like, well, what, you know, what, who was Selena and sort of like the broader context of the music and the broader kind of like history of, of race and class and right. South Texas and the Southwest. I kind of began with this general questions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really just to take a couple of seminars and getting a chance in my graduate seminars to kind of pose some of these questions through different theories and analytics and like feminist studies um, and cultural studies. And slowly what I began to find was that there, you know, of course was a, a genre of, Mexican-American, what we could call Chicano music, that there was a big absence, right, with regards to analysis around gender and sexuality. Right. So that, that really was what opened the door. And the more I kind of searched to make sense of it, um, the more gaps, the more absences, you know, um, and visibilities there were to any artists that came before Selena, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was really, the, the you know, in, in a very kind of just general sort of like grad school, grad students right. kind of like looking for answers sort of ways, what led me to really developing what were the initial sort of like little kernels, you know, of what would be the book. And so, you know, I began in my graduate school years just sort of doing more research, um, trying to go back to find some of these missing voices that were very, um, you know, that were very present in the memories of people, right, and that were kind of, there, but at the same time, not there, right? Scattered, um, but not legible in a, in a very kind of like historical, <clears throat> you know, way, right? There were no clear narratives. There were pieces. There were fragments. There were sort of scattered um, stories, um, you know, uh, this sort of fuzzy memories, right? And so this was basically the the archive that that, that I had to sort of like, in many ways, create you right. know, before mm-hmm. I even got to the point of doing the analysis. But that that was generally the very beginnings of how um, what would become, you know, the dissertation and then and then sort of like the revision for the book. That was initially what began that, yeah. Great. I, you know, I love hearing that. I love, and I find um, that it, it not just rings true to me personally, but also so many that I speak to 
how you know an experience in you know was then you know the present you know the, the experience with uh, uh, Selena's death and then you know this kind of uh, the media fumbling over as you as you mentioned trying to make sense of who she was <laughs> and and what this mm-hmm. what this impact was that she was having why people were just seemingly um, right uh, so uh, in just fanatic about her um, yeah you know that that yeah. caused you to look back into the past right that caused you to start questioning um, yeah you know yeah. these the, the representations of, of f- yeah. female performers and in, in uh, both musicians and singers um, and then you know lo and behold you are able to you know work really hard and you produce a book that's very historical it goes you know uh, you know decades back you know before yeah. uh, Selena right and uh, ties into mm-hmm. Um, you know, all aspects of, you know, Texas Mexican borderlands history. So, um, that's, that's just fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one little funny sort of like <clears throat> note, right. That sort of like it, it that I just remember is it was really being bothered by the pronunciation of Selena's name, right? Mm-hmm. Because like, um, for English language, obviously television, it was sort of like the confusion was around where was Corpus Christi, right? There was no understanding of, right. like, this this region. And then Spanish-language media kept calling her Selena, mm-hmm. right, which is a Spanish-language pronunciation of, mm-hmm. of her name. But yet, you know, that little shift was very telling because there was so much symbolic, right, about the fact that, like, Selena was never Selena, right? Mm-hmm. And why, why was she always Selena? And why, you know, there right. was just something really important about sort of the pronunciation of, of her name, right, and, and not in a Spanish language that, you know, again, sort of is filled out, like, by a number of different works since then about the politics of language and race right. and her being sort of third, fourth generation, right, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that's always was, was, you know, I remember that being something that was like, ah, it really sort of like, there's so much to this these moments where people are sort of mispronouncing um Selena's name, right? So right. that's just one example of, of sort of how, you know, it just opened up all these questions that I had as a, as a young grad student. No, and that's so true because, I mean, uh, you know, I slip in and out of, uh, you know, the, uh, the pronunciation of her name and I've heard so many even... You know, of, of my, you know, a number of my colleagues and just people I know that, you know, that, that do a, a similar thing. And I think it speaks to one of the themes of the book, you know, these larger, um, cultural nationalist projects, right? Of trying to claim a person mm-hmm. in a way and, and claim their work, uh, that, that, in a way that validates one's sense of history, right? Or fits into mm-hmm. a larger narrative trope. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and particularly here, we're speaking of the Texas Mexico, um, Borderlands. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah. Um, and I and appreciate you mes- mentioning Selena as well because we're going to talk about her a little bit later. Um, but the other thing I wanted to mention before we get into some specific examples, uh, I wanted to what, what struck me in reading the the beginning of your book was the type of approach that you bring. Uh, to the study of the past, uh, and you, so you, you write in the introduction. Um, I'm going to you know, read a little excerpt here, if you don't mind. Uh, I was raised in a musical soundscape that fostered a bodily knowing of text-mess music. Okay, and then you also say that um, that you have carried this embodied knowledge to engage new spaces of knowing that revealed different s- stories and narratives of music than those held together by dominant tropes, historical narratives, and archives. What really struck me is this this kind of alternative um, 
epistemology, if you will, you know, way of, of knowing or understanding the past that you're discussing here that involves, you know, the body and that incorporates music and, and, and dancing and all of this. So, uh, will you discuss, uh, you know, your experience with music, kind of your background with it, and how you you came to bring this approach into yeah. your your study of the past? Yeah. Um, well, you know, part of it was, um, you know, part of my approach, of course, came as a you know being trained as a as a feminist scholar, right? So, you know, part of my approach, uh, you know, also began to sort of see this kind of like landscape or a lot of the the gaps and invisibilities of these artists um, through some of these frameworks, right, that they have us think critically, you know, about um, historical absences, about the gendered politics of historiography, about, um, you know, the kind of dominant models uh, that uh, are often used and reproduced to kind of like think about, about history or about cultural productions, et cetera. So some of that approach sort of came from my from my training, right, that I mm. really am invested in. It's kind of like feminist approach to thinking about um, performance or about um, a variety of different narratives or the ways in which we think about cultural texts. But okay. the other was also sort of my own, as you mentioned, my own kind of experiences around music and musical meaning, right? So in some ways I always tell people, you know, I had no business really writing about music, right? Why? Because I'm not a musician <laughs> and I'm not a musicologist, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, what sort of what, you know, when I often thought about this, you know, when I was initially thinking about this project, like what equips me to actually think and write and research about music, right? I don't right. have this intimate sort of like musical relationship with it. But, um, you know, at the same time, I felt like this actually is something that's really valuable because most people don't, right, have this kind of, like, trained connection to music. Most people who enjoy music, um, that find music meaningful for a variety of different reasons, mm-hmm. um, you know, that draw from music to tell stories, et cetera, don't have that, right? So in some ways, I, I sort of use that, you know, this kind of way in which music was around me and surrounded me in order to to create these kinds of like um, analytics and frameworks that I draw from in the book, right? So mm-hmm. they're not musicology based, and they're not um, also from the perspective of someone who hears music at the way that a musician um, hears music, right? Or a singer right. hears music, right? So the tones, right, that I hear and the connections that I have to rhythms or to um, you know, you know what we understand of as music, right? Is is coming from this kind of like perspective of of a kind of um, a non trained ear, right? So mm-hmm. I had to really honor the ways in which um, my own memories and you know my own body and and my own sort of cultural sensibilities connected with music, and in some ways it ended up being actually really valuable because. I quickly learned that part of what the book um, had to do was really try to open up a variety of different ways in which we understand music and what right. what we actually end up marking, right, historically and in many ways validating as music, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, is music something that, you know, and of course there's a variety of different theories, right, about what makes music music, like how do we label something as music, Um but but for this particular kind of like you know genre or set of like musical artists you know um, 
the ways in which they sort of disappeared or weren't really part of sort of like our kind of knowledge, right, in a, in a formal sense, right, of, of, of musical past, you know, had very much to do with, with the structures and the kind of, um, you know, as you said, uh, you know, dominant genealogies, right, of music. But, but so, you know, somewhere along the, along the way, there, these kind of structures and kind of, you know, um, institutions of how we kind of understand music have, in many ways, um, contributed, right, to um, a kind of inclusion and exclusion right. Right, around who gets to be part of that. So in many ways, like, yeah, embodiment, um, memories, everything that, that, for me, that circulates around music, right? So it could be performance, it could be dance, it could be different aesthetics, it could be just moments um, uh, that, that people recall, right, um, are also, for me, what becomes music, right? Mm-hmm. So this is why the book kind of, in, in some ways, of course, like I tried to do these analyses of songs or performances, but they're also, what's really important is everything going on outside of the music, right? That is as central, right, to our understanding of music making and, and music, right, as the so-called music itself, right, what we understand as, as music, whether it's like a song or a lyric or a particular kind of beat, etc. So... So that's, you know, I think those two things, right, um, my non-training, right, mm-hmm. like <laughs> my, in some ways, like my non-formal connection to music um, really came together with, with um, my training, right, as a kind of feminist um, feminist scholar. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And you also, in, in the beginning of the book, and this is the thing we must discuss really quickly here uh, before we move on, is this concept of musical dissonance. Mm-hmm. And uh, if um, either, you know, as, as there's, a, there's an excerpt from the, the introduction that I, I, uh, that I think clarifies it a bit, but I, I would rather have you, can, will you just take a few moments and explain um, yeah. this concept of musical dis- dissonance and, and how central it is to your work? Yeah, well, you know, the, 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 the main sort of sort of starting point for how and why I came up with, with dissonance as a kind of major framework is because I, I really became um, invested in, in not writing a kind of um, book or a kind of analysis that would easily fall back into a kind of um, narrative, right, of of Texas Mexican or Chicano or what we might call borderlands music, right? I became mm-hmm. very invested in that because it slowly became apparent that as I began to present my work, sort of share my work with people that I was interviewing, um, there was this kind of expectation um, around it, it sort of being added to a kind of canon, right, of borderlands mm-hmm. music. Like all these histories of women, they're going to be added, right? How, how great, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so I slowly started to realize that I had to be very aware, you know, in a critical way, mm-hmm. in a productive way, I think, to not allow that to happen, because exactly. I felt that if that happened, then the complexities, right? And right. so slowly I had to kind of think about, well, what is it that I'm hearing? How can we capture a sense of music that um, allows us to sort of appreciate, right, the, the knowledge that that we've gained, either through historical um you know, projects or through our own kind of experiences, right, or the experiences of people we grow up with or we kind of surround ourselves with that also are very much teachers of music, right? Like I feel like I've 
learned as much from, you know, folks about music than I do from formal, you know, projects around music. So, mm-hmm. But, you know, I kind of started to realize like I, I, uh, that part of what the project had to do was create a different way of listening, but also a different comprehension for what music is, right? And so if I simply produced a book that, you know, added these histories to a kind of canonical um, history of Borderlands music, then it would really wouldn't honor, right, the challenges that these, these women went through, or I think the very radical kind of performances that they, that they leave us with, right, that allow us to rethink history and rethink power and rethink race relations and mm-hmm. rethink all sorts of things, right? And so for me, that became, you know, um, a way of kind of getting at honoring the kind of, like, the, the messiness, the the non-clarity, right? The, like, you know, that there's something in the sort of, um, for lack of a better word, um, the cacophony, right, dissonance, it's kind of mm-hmm. like something that doesn't quite fit, right? And so right. finally, I, I, I sort of, like, started thinking a lot about dissonance, literally, right, in a kind of, like, sonic way, but really also um, precisely in a kind of theoretical way, right? So what what can't we hear? Why haven't we been able to hear these women? What right. stands in our way of, like, um, appreciating their sounds, et cetera? And so slowly this began to to develop, right, as the way of honoring, um, you know, the the missing parts, the two out of bounds parts, the you know the you know non you know musical kind of making sense parts of, of musical production, et cetera, right? So how how can I sort of like try to honor that by also telling their very complicated, complex, and beautiful stories, right? Mm-hmm. So that that's how I sort of arrived at kind of trying to create an analytic that kind of honor this sort of way in which we can appreciate and love and learn from music in a way that is outside of the confines, right, and the kind of structures of, of music, right, that oftentimes leave out um, performances, right, that are, you know, too problematic or too whatever, that don't fit, you know, a kind of, a kind of like, yeah, a kind of like... Um, easy kind of history or too celebratory sense of history of music. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Or, and as you mentioned, story. something that doesn't fit into the, you know, the normative tropes of the way Borderlands or Chicano history has been generally presented in, um, you know, and essentially uh, discussing history or uh, analyzing along lines of either, you know, acculturation or, you know, cultural resistance or assimilation, you know, these kind of binary represent representations of history are kind exactly. of like these major tropes that, that exist in, as you mentioned, the canonical literature. So then you're, 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 you're disrupting that literature with this concept of dissonance by mm-hmm. either addressing, uh, you know, Chicana, Tejana singers and musicians that either haven't been discussed much or haven't taken, been taken seriously, right? Because as you say, yeah. it's either due to their gender exactly. or their performative style that don't mm-hmm. fit that canon. And thereby, mm-hmm. you, you can't just add and stir, right? You have mm-hmm. to, you know, present them on their own as the, the al- exactly. alternative, uh, you know, other side, if you will, um, uh, just this, this different, you know, perspective and and story that is that doesn't fit to either one of those right mm-hmm. exactly exactly and sometimes they you know the narratives of how they live their life didn't fit right? right which is another reason as to why oftentimes 
you know, they're either not fully um, engaged, right, and they're and they're kind of like in their whole wholeness, right, um, mm-hmm. or they're kind of e- edited in some ways to fit, right. And so right. for me too, this is why, you know, doing some of these oral histories or going to sort of look at archives that that maybe for a, a musicologist, and I'm not trying to like you know say all musicologists do this, but but maybe for someone who is interested in sort of recognizing certain ideas of what music are, you know, may leave out, right, may leave out sort of um, memories or other kinds of ephemera or, or what have you, right, as part of what I, I think is really central to music making and the meaning of music, right? Mm-hmm. So those, those are the places, too, that I, I really learned from them, you know, um, that was really equally important to, you know, an, an, a recording, for example, or a certain performance. Great, right? Yeah. Well, let's since I've been keeping everybody in suspense, let's let's start talking about some of these examples, wonderful examples you bring up in these lives, fascinating lives you bring up in the book. And I want to start with uh, Rosita Fernandez, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who you know is a local San uh, San Antonio legend, uh, right? Mm-hmm. You you argue that she poses an alternative sonic imaginary of mm-hmm. San Antonio, right? As a mm-hmm. Chicana that operated in between the, the gendered and racialized constructions of the Texas-Mexico borderlands, which we're referring to either this, you know, uh, assimilation or cultural resistance, mm-hmm. one or the other, right? You can't really go mm-hmm. between the two, right? So will you right, tell us right. a little bit about Rosita and, you know, why her life and career problematized the, the strict distinctions between Anglo-Texan and, and Tejano, Tejana culture that we started to talk about that's kind of formed the canonical literature? Yeah, um, so Rosita Fernandez um, is a you know is a really fascinating figure, and and you know I grew up in in San Antonio, so Rosita Fernandez was everywhere, right? And so this is part of like sort of what I was alluding to before when I talked about sort of you know embodiment and just sort of how um, even though I wasn't a trained musician per se, music was always around me, and so she you know was this figure that was uh, iconic, you know, in many ways, and. And, and and in in an ironic way, right? She is not someone who is whose archive is scattered or sort of like in you know or sort of like partial or sort of disappeared. You know, she doesn't not actually kept every single like part of her career, right? And it's actually a an archive that is um, part you know of an institution, right? A research institution in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. So what was ironic was sort of like you know when I first kind of started thinking about Rosita's, like, why, you know, where, where she sort of fits kind of like the, you know, the kinds of models of, of how histories are written, right? You sort of, sort of seek out an archive, and if you're lucky enough to find um, an, an archive, you can sort of develop a history of a person around you, mm-hmm. right? So my curiosity was always, like, why, why hasn't anyone really, like, thought about Rosita Fernandez in terms of music, right? Mm-hmm. And slowly what became apparent was because Rosita Fernandez was a very controversial and, you know, very ambiguous figure to a kind of history, a kind of uh, sort of cultural nationalist-like history of of Borderlands music, right? She Mm -hmm. was what we might call generally a more uh, commercial performer later, you know, later on in her years, although initially, you know, she began very much the the kind of peer to Lidia Mendoza, right? And where Lidia Mendoza is much more uh, well-known and you know, whose career has been celebrated and who really fits in many ways a kind of like cultural resistant 
um, musical figure, right? That that or is kind of one of these tropes in Chicano music. So Take the Fernandez begins that way. You know, she's recording, she's performing with a family very similar to the Mendoza family, but she sort of goes in a different direction, right? For a number of different reasons that I talk about in the book, and becomes really towards a later later on in her career more of like this commercial. San Antonio tourist kind of like like performing figure, right? And so she's really highly dismissed by a lot of music scholars, right? As very superficial, right? Mm, mm-hmm. um, not uh, making so-called real music, right? As <laughs> uh, the antithesis, really, to any kind of cultural resistant musical figure, right? And so all those things actually made me really curious about her and really curious about what her. Um, um, her iconicity, right? Her symbol, um, which was so closely connected to to the um, to the Alamo, right? Mm-hmm. And the whole kind of like fabrication of you know histories of Texan independence and whatnot, right? It was very very closely aligned to that, and so it, it just became really really interesting to me. And I thought that there's something really a lot more. There's a lot more complexity and a lot more, in many ways, contradiction that I thought was. It needs to be um, a lot more of the conversations that we tend to have, right? That, that, as you alluded to, tend to fall within this kind of binary. You're either kind of like, you know, kind of like Mexican resistant figure that stands against sort of like everything problematic about Anglo white supremacy and, you know, the Alamo and Texas Republic and all that, or you're sort of like this traitor figure, right? Right. Um, kind of, um, you know, once again kind of figure who, mm-hmm. you know, buys into or sells out, right, to sort of like Anglo supremacy in Texas, right? Mm-hmm. And Rosita, um, I felt like in addition to what I hope is a, is a more kind of complex history, right, to her musical production, also I think, and this is what was the kind of objective to the chapter, creates uh, for us, I think, a much more productive um, you know, sight and, and, and kind of, um, you know, I think she's just a, a more productive figure for, for allowing us to really kind of grapple with and really contend with a lot of the contradictions, right? That those binaries, right, of either, um, you know, purely kind of cultural resistant or kind of like sellout, right, to Anglo supremacy, um, white supremacy kind of doesn't really... Um, I think necessarily always allow us to think productively about race relations, right? Mm-hmm. About class, et cetera, et cetera, right? In that kind of region, in that history. So I think she was really important for, for in, in many of those ways. But but you know, but generally she has not at all been engaged, right, by the sort of canonical music historians because she's really seen as this kind of like really generally as a kind of commercial sellout, right? right. As a kind right. of middle class. Um, sort of pop icon and a, and in many ways in a very derogatory way it's the kind of you know servant to right. to you know to San Antonio kind of Anglo culture so yeah well and there is definitely that tension in the canon if you will you know of <laughs> assessing those that experience a bit of success I, I experienced this in my scholarship on um, as well but of those that of uh, those Chicanos Chicanas uh, that experience that a little bit of success, right? They get labeled sellouts rather, rather than what you do, which you actually point to her, you know, savviness as a businesswoman, you know, right. Mm -hmm. Um, Forcing herself, taking, you know, being assertive to um, Mm -hmm. 
be bilingual. You know, to translate songs from、mm-hmm. English to Spanish and、mm-hmm. vice versa, knowing how to market herself to、mm-hmm. an Anglo audience, right? Being one、mm-hmm. of the the、mm-hmm. first,、uh, you know, Tejanos perhaps on on radio, right? And、mm-hmm. um, Uh, getting the type of distribution she did, it's it would be it would be easy to dismiss that right as a sellout. But what you do、yeah. in the chapter is you take that seriously and you you look at the decisions she made and、uh, her various transitions,、uh, whether from you know touring and then deciding to stop touring and okay, I'm not going to tour anymore because I want to you know stay more local and be with family. How am I going to continue my career? Right? She makes strategic choices. Uh, right, so her agency hasn't been honored, is what you're pointing out, right? Which is what mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I think is just、yeah. a great, a great part of that that yeah. chapter. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm glad that that comes. I'm I'm happy to hear that comes across because you know the the other part that that's really important, right? And thinking about her agency that that I attempt to do is that it's also like a、um, you know sort of like a setup too, right? To sort of try to place. What the state of Fernandez did into these models of cultural resistance because you have to really deal with gender,、mm-hmm, right? And you right. have to deal with the historical context of what it meant, right? So,、mm-hmm. you know, really quickly, like you know, one thing that's very fascinating about Sita Fernandez is there was a very complicated gender、um, role, for lack of a better word, kind of agreement between her and her husband. And she's really by far out of all the research that I've done on on a number of these women. I mean, there's others that did end up in the book,、um, you know, who who. Stayed in this kind of like more stable marriage throughout her career, right?、Mm-hmm. Why? Because most of these women, when they found partners,、um, you know, would not be supported, right? And were often left by their partners because maybe they were allowed a few years, or maybe they could go and perform here and there. But you know, to establish themselves as music performers, right?、Um, to go on tour, et cetera, et cetera, was not supported by most of the partners that these women had. So. What was interesting is that Osita sort of works this out with her with her husband, right? That she sort of remains with for the rest of her life, and it's just you know another example of how I think feminist frameworks and a kind of attention to gender and the ways in which you can't read、um, you know social class or something like、uh, a kind of commercial sense of of musical performance without thinking critically about about gender and race at that time, right? So、mm-hmm. you can't really You know, for me, what 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 oftentimes、um, is you know、um, you know just a point of kind of disagreement with a lot of folks who who have particular ideas about Rita Fernandez is you know they want to sort of like read her、um, you know as、um, again sort of like a figure like Rita Fernandez. I mean, like、uh, Lidia Mendoza and say, well. You know, here's the other kind of like model. Like, why couldn't she become this,、mm-hmm. right? But it's really unfair, you know, to sort of like do that because you really don't get at sort of like the the real difficulty and challenges that 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 you know Mexican descent women,、um, particularly in that time, had to decide, right, right, between certain kind of ways of making their living and you know the, the pressures that were placed on them to marry and to sort、right. of like be. You know, in a in a in a relationship, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. So that that you know is what the chapter tries to do, sort of like complicate that, right? And and、um, yeah, and try try to give us another way of kind of thinking about musical production outside of of cultural resistance. Right,、yeah. and then as you pointed as well as to the the type of subjectivities and identities that develop, you know, in、uh, you know in these borderland spaces where. 
uh, Rosita, you know, you, talk, you discuss the symbols of the, the Alamo and her China Poblana dress mm-hmm. and, and how these were mm-hmm. uh, women's, you know, place within these symbols were very, you know, gendered and racialized. But, mm-hmm. you know, she, again, owned them. She took ownership of them and, and crafted her image so that she negotiated and, and mediated and was able to occupy parts of both cult- cultures, right? So it's it's not that either or, but she's she really forged a a type of a, you know merging of the two uh, a bridge if mm-hmm. you will between the Tejano uh, and the Anglo uh, Texan mm-hmm. um, right there's a lot of uh, you know so there's there's yeah. no ways we go with that but she becomes a key figure of you know yeah, people that, yeah. of, of people that do that right and then so a lot of yeah. people can resonate right with the decisions that yeah. they make in their lives that that yeah. that just you know have to negotiate these yeah. spaces right yeah no exactly and I think that that's really what um, I hope. That, that, that she or this analysis on her kind of contributes, right, to kind of even the broader field of Chicano studies and borderlands theory. Because I think, you know, one tendency would have been to sort of recover Rosita as this kind of agent, right, that is sort of, again, resistant to um, white supremacy in Texas or who, you know, who, like, we can find these moments where, right, and she does do that, but she's also oftentimes complacent, right? She's mm-hmm. oftentimes a very um, a contradiction, right? A subject of contradiction. Right. And that was really important for me because I think, um, you know, oftentimes, especially if you take a kind of like like um, historical narratives of South Texas, there's, is, there tends to be this kind of binary, right? That doesn't really account for, for example, um, you know, a Mexican landed elite, right? Mm-hmm. In Texas that still mm-hmm. exists. Um, that you don't account for... Right. Um, settler colonialism um, that you don't account for, right? And so I think that part of what I wanted to do with that chapter is kind of honor um, that complexity and the challenges, right? And and the best, basically, she did the best, right, that she could to try to, like, establish a livelihood. But that I wanted to fully show the, the contradictions because I think generally, um, more often than not, um, Mexican descent, folks in South Texas are, you know, more often probably subjects of contradiction than they are, right, um, subjects of cultural resistance, right? And that's okay, you know. It doesn't mean that it's um, a kind of critique that is intended to be, um, you know, you know, derogatory. It's just to say that it's, it's, it's very complicated, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, living and, and existing as a racial life subject in, in South Texas especially is very complicated, right? And so I, I wanted to kind of present her her story and her kind of like musical, you know, um, performance and what she means to to Borderlands music, right, in all of those kinds of ways. Right. right. I think she offers us, I think, a good model for, um, you know, again, sort of moving outside of the pressures of, of kind of, yeah, just, just fitting into these kind of seamless, you know, um, always resistant figures, right? But oftentimes mm-hmm. we, you know, we ourselves are, are, you know, filled with, you know, decisions that we make that are more complacent. And sometimes right. maybe we do, right? Kind right. of like mm-hmm. create models of, of resistance or, um, but sometimes we don't. So I wanted to kind of present her in that way. Right, and and you do a great job, and I want to talk about um, here uh, you know, the Tex-Mex um, uh, accordion sound. Okay, that comes a little <laughs> yeah. bit later in the books. Is this this is something that really interests me as well? It rings so true. Whether uh, you know, I'm I'm uh, at my in-laws and I I hear a backyard party, or we go to a 
you know, quinceanera, whatever it is, you know, the accordion uh, is just uh, becomes, you know, one of the central sounds within the various genres of uh, Latino and uh, Chicano music. So um, you discuss how uh, the the accordion becomes really in, ingrained through uh, its, it's really its performative aspect as a, you know, kind of a masculine kind of project or, or performativity that, that fits really into this this borderland uh, resistance type of narrative. Yet mm-hmm. the divas you introduce us to really problematize that, of course. And mm-hmm. so you you carry us through kind of a little trajectory of two key uh, Chicanas, Tejanas that, uh, that really disrupt or provide dissonance to that, that canon or that narrative. And that, that's Eva Ibarra and Venturo Alonso, and you actually start okay. with the latter. So Venturo Alonso, and then you go to Ibarra. So will you, you talk? Uh, will you tell us a little bit about them? Um, you know, and why they present these curious archetypes uh, within, you know, the within La Onda, within this, you know, the the dominant um, discussions and, and, and yeah. discourse around uh, Chicano Tejano music. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, this chapter, especially, I think, um, you know, in all of them, they they go back to kind of like the, the broader framework that I have around um, the, you know, foundings of, of Borderlands, right, or what I call the sonic imaginaries that are produced through Borderlands music, and um, you know, in this chapter the accordion, right, is, is one of those, like like others, but is one of those very prominent sounds, right, in the kind of like canonical history of, of the music, and also literally, right, in terms of like if you kind of grow, you can't escape, and I think I say that in in some in some part of the chapter, or I say like you, even if you're not into this kind of music or whatever, you're gonna hear it. You're gonna hear it right. from the cantina down the street, or you're like mm-hmm. you said, you're gonna hear it at some backyard barbecue because your uncle puts on some. You know, you're gonna hear accordion based what what you know um, historians refer to as Tex-Mex conjunto music. Pretty often, it's almost inescapable, right? Um, right. Uh, although you can try to escape it, but so for me, like the the sound, you know, of the accordion became very curious to me because it carries with it so much of this um, symbolism, right, around um, history and around, as I was saying earlier, a kind of form of resistance. It, it becomes a kind of sound that that carried a lot of these really important kinds of, of tropes. Um, in the, the canonical kind of histories of Borderlands music. And so when I thought about the accordion itself, I thought a lot about the instrument, this and that. And then, and then what became really obvious, because, of course, I'm, I'm very interested in, in gender, right, and sexuality, is the very few women that have actually become prominent kinds of figures, right, mm-hmm. that haven't really been um, analyzed or really focused on. But also the very few you know, female bodies that have actually taken the accordion up, right, as their their instrument. That became something very interesting to me. And so this is kind of how I started to really think um, a little bit more critically. And again, what I didn't want to do was sort of say, hey, like you have these figures, right, like an Eva Ibarra or a Ventura Alonso. Isn't this great? You know, these are like the only figures, right, that have done this. Like I (laughs) celebrate them. And I do like to celebrate them. I I love all of these... um, figures that I write about, all of these performers, I think they're magnificent, but but I also thought that there was something else sort of like at work here, and solely what I found in my research was that it was really important, I think, for me to understand that the, the sound and the prominence and the kind of narratives and tropes that created um, the meaningfulness around the sound were really 
kind of, tra- I think, trapped and very limited in the sense that they really reproduce the very kind of masculine in the sense of, mm-hmm. of notions of belonging and of home and community um, and nation, et cetera, right? And so that was the, the kind of entry point, like what is actually really happening here besides the fact that there are very few women playing. I became less interested in that and more really about the bodily performance of that sound. Right. It became very important for me to kind of like think about the body, the female playing body mm-hmm. and the sort of like the, the talk and the narratives around what people understood to be happening when you actually see a female body. And so slowly what I found was that there was very much, you know, it was very much a site of anxiety for people to actually see, right, um, a female body um, playing or sort of like having this instrument literally pressed against her body. And so some of that came through a lot of interviews and just, um, you know, uh, kind of field work out in music sites and festivals and et cetera, et cetera, right, um, that um, was very informative in a sense. So what actually became the site of, for me that was very interesting was actually the bodies at play, which right. is literally the, the female body and the musical instrument, you know, body. Mm-hmm. So that's the sort of where I kind of went with that chapter. And I began with Vitura Alonso because she, she creates a kind of... Um, She's really intended in the chapter to kind of create a sort of lead-in to Eva Ibarra, right? Um, and by that I mean that, um, you know, she really shares with us um, in the chapter, she really shares with us sort of like this kind of alternative entry point into conjunto music, right? right. Particularly in the mid-20th century that is so important to the canonical history of Tex-Mex artists, right? So, you know, Ventura Alonso is, is existing and playing at the same time of a lot of these so-called fathers of conjunto music, right? Mm-hmm. She, right? Even in her bar that she co-owns with her husband, who she would always make very clear to me she was the one that actually worked in that yeah. bar. Um, you know, she comes across <laughs> all of these figures. She right. she knows the Jimenez, you know, the Jimenez family, the father, Flaco, right, Narciso Martinez. So all these are kind of like her peers or her contemporaries. So I begin with her not so much to kind of like create a linear history, but as a way to say, hey, like, you know, what does this appearance of Ventura Alonso kind of do to this, um, you know, I think overly kind of like reduced history of Tex-Mex Conjunto as a kind of like father, right, of Texas-Mex and borderland music, right? It's mm-hmm. kind of like the sound becomes a kind of like father figure. And so she was a kind of way to kind of like disrupt that and kind of like be a beginning to sort of say, what if we kind of thought about um, Eva Ibarra by beginning with Ventura, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to let's talk about Eva Ibarra as sort of um, as a counter or as right. a kind of woman alternative to exactly. the greats, the fathers of the music. So I kind of will try mm-hmm. to use um, Mr. Alonso to kind of create a different opening for my discussion of, of Eva Ibarra. No, and that's a, that was a, that's a, it was a great, um, that was a great, I don't know, I, I hesitate to say strategy, but just the way that you, you organized it, I think works very well. And I mean, particularly for your focus, I mean, as you mentioned, your, your focus, the site you're focused on here is the female body, female body. And, uh, you make this point so clearly, uh, in the, the opening of, of chapter three. Um, 
I was going to read a selection, but we, we, we don't have too much time, and I'm going to use that as a tease for our listeners. You know, mm-hmm. when you get this book, they have to read, mm-hmm. um, you know, all the chapters, but of course, pages 108 and 109, it's where you, I, I read this, these pages like, like four, four or five times in a row, you know, the other mm-hmm. day, just because you paint this visual imagery that drives home the point that you just can't to, just can't listen to the music to get a sense of how masculinity is intertwined with Tex-Mex Conjunto, you know, and the, the accordion sound, right? That you have to see it. You have to see the, you know, both the, the, the masculine performativity of the, the musicians themselves, but then the way that interworks with the dance floor and the, the scene or the site or wherever it is spatially, whether this is in a, you know, a cantina or, or wherever it may be, you know, um, you know, how gender plays itself out on those scenes that that has to be experienced as you so you have to see it as well as hearing it in order to really get a sense of of uh, of this uh, so you know that was just a that was one of my favorite parts of the book to be honest with you oh, and great. um i think that again clearly it drove home the, the point that you're you're trying to make and why you focus on the female body and, and and how these two figures in particular create these curious archetypes right that really disrupt the the masculine performativity of the accordion sound and um and uh, again it's just it's just wonderful to to read also of the the accounts as you were able to interview these these women and uh to hear their own words or to to read their own words on on what they thought of their own performances i thought was was yeah. uh, really you know it was empowering um and yeah. uh, it's it's always wonderful i think particularly as in in works of history to to hear uh the subject's voice you know and to to allow that to come through and you do that you you allow their voices to come through and you're very careful yeah. on how you present it so that was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, I think with the accordion chapter, um, it's probably the, the best example that I try to do this throughout the, the chapters. And generally, like the book, what the book's generally about is sort of like what you know. These, if we kind of think about the imaginaries, right, that music kind of makes, and in, right. in, in the sense in Borderlands music, then what I try to do with the book is kind of say we need more than just kind of these audible sensory modes, right? We have to mm-hmm. really understand music is sort of filled by a lot more, by other smells, by other, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, other things that we see, other kinds of things that we hear, right, outside of that. So I tried to do that with this chapter in a sense. That's why I began the chapter by, by talking about what um, accordion conjunto music kind of sounds like in other senses, right? And through smell and, and through what we see and, and et cetera. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So I, I enjoyed that chapter as well in the sense of like, it was challenging, you know, I mean, each of them were really challenging, but I think this one, especially because there was just a lot of complexity to, um, kind of honoring, um, the stories, um, by these women with, um, yeah, by, by not allowing them to call, kind of fall back into um, these kind of like great fathers of Guantanamo music. Right, right. And the, the other point that really struck me that I think all of our listeners can can relate to is the, the sonic imagining that music produces, right? You can, you can literally hear a sound of a song. It just, it can be one bar, right? It can be just mm-hmm. even the first couple notes and you can be immediately transported Right to a place in your past, mm-hmm. where, where as you mentioned, the sight, the the sound, and the smell all come together, 
and mm-hmm. you know you're you can feel the emotion of that time and that place. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost as if it's a, it's a time machine, right? And you really bring that out in the chapter. So I I appreciate that so much, Great. and and I'm that is a necessary form of analysis, right? That's that's the point that mm-hmm. I really uh, appreciate that uh, you know you you bring that through. And so yes, well we we're, we're running out of time, but we have to talk about Selena. Uh, before we wrap exactly. up, you know, well, we actually started with it, right? <laughs> we started with it, right? We started yeah. with the we have yeah. to bookend our our conversation here with her. Um, it, it's it your your discussion of her, you know, transported me <laughs> in back in time because I was in high school. You mentioned you're in college. I was in high school. I think I was a junior or something, sophomore, or junior when she passed away, and um, I didn't know of her naturally, like. Most mm-hmm. probably of America, most Americans didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, that that didn't exist mm-hmm. along the border, right? The, the, the Texas-Mexican border, that is. I grew up on the the San Diego, the you know Southern California-Mexico mm-hmm. border. So I didn't know of her, uh, you know, until she passed, and her music just flooded the airwaves. And mm-hmm. m- you know, my family, my sisters, I have four sisters. We all became enthralled with her, you know. And um, <laughs> so I was really able to relate to a lot of it, right? So, but mm-hmm. that's not what you're doing in this chapter, of course. You're not just mm-hmm. talking about her wonderful career. Um, you know, you're, you, you introduce us to her by talking about the emergence of brown soul in the late 1960s, mm-hmm. right? That this new kind of sound, uh, which consisted mm-hmm. of the merging of African American, R&B, funk, uh, with, uh, Tex-Mex, Tex-Mex orchestra music, right? Uh, and so although a number of recent studies, and I, can, I could rattle off names here, but there's no need to, right, uh, have analyzed the, the fusion and hybridity between African-American and Chicano slash Latino music and popular culture throughout the 20th century, as a feminist of color, you bring a unique perspective and a method of analysis to this literature and to the discussion of of Selena, where you, you take her uh, uh, perhaps a bit more seriously, at least than, of course, what's been represented in the media and and some things which others haven't addressed, right? So you address, um, again, masculinity within the, the brown soul, within the, the sound and its, its performative aspects. And you refer to this as uh, musical movimiento masculinity. And then also you bring out uh, the, di- the dissonance of the African diasporic sound, which was a part of her music. That mm-hmm. has been often dismissed by just uh, you know the discussions of Selena as you know a crossover artist, which again ties mm-hmm. into those assimilationist tropes, right? She, mm-hmm. she okay, she did it. Oh, she did okay, right, with text yeah. mix music, but she really needed to cross over to the English market to make it, right? And so you're really, right, right. You, you totally destroy that. Um, so we expand on that in, in our remaining moments. I mean, you particularly you bring up this concept of making faces and her her mm-hmm. really unique sound. Uh, so can you? talk uh, on those two things a, a bit yeah so you know the the, the chapter is really um, like you said trying to do a, a couple of things one is to really um, challenge that I think really limited ways in which um, when you know even in media or whether you know even other music scholars have tried to sort of make sense of Selena or sort of think about her musical performance um, it's through these kinds of like you said dominant narratives of assimilation or cross over or et cetera, um, that really leave out for me, like what I think one of the important things that she's doing is actually offering us a different kind of analytic for what, what Chicano music or even the, you know, the, the construction of, of Chicanidad is in terms of like, um, a kind of critical perspective of like race, right. And gender and class, of course. Uh, but, but especially race, right. So what does that rely on? And I think that, um, 
you know, what, what Selena offers us um, is a different way of really um, thinking about what, what, what we mean when we say something is Chicano music or Borderlands music. And mm-hmm. this is right. especially through the ways in which I feel like she's been misheard, right? So I, what I try to do, this is the general argument of the chapter is to basically say, I think we really have to re-listen to Selena again, which is why, you know, she's not a new artist. She's not an, an artist like the rest of the artists in my book. So, you know, who people don't know relatively much about, right? Because Selena, people know a lot about her, but in some ways I'm trying to challenge the kind of oversaturation of Selena. Exactly. Because I think she's overly saturated in a sense that, like, she's talked about and remembered in a very limited way. And so what the chapter's Mm -hmm, trying to do mm -hmm. is say, okay, Selena's not a new artist, but I think we need to newly listen to her. I think we need to listen to her again. And my argument really generally is, is, is quite simple, but yet I think also a critical project, which is to think about African diasporic sound or blackness um, mm-hmm. and African American and African descent history. Um, that's all part of her music. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, what I'm trying to say is that we have to really think of Selena more through this. What I'm proposing is an idea of brown soul, right? And it's more, you know, the chapters intended to be more than just saying there's this relationship, right? Or there's a kind of borrowing or this kind of fusion. Exactly, of black right. Black music and brown music, right? But rather, what, what would happen if we kind of rethought about Chicano music through African diasporic sound, right? right what would right. that change in a sense of like our meaning of what Chicano music is that heavily relies on, right? And this is a problematic that we talk about in our classrooms, you know, an over-reliance on an indigenous kind mm-hmm. of Spanish or indigenous European kind of like racialized subjectivity, right? With, that totally removes, um, you know, histories of African descent um, uh, and, you know, uh, and, uh, and African descent performance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what did we kind of rethought about? And so I think Selena found um, this proposition of brown soul um, is way to basically ask the audience to reconsider her music, but more so than that, I think her music really challenges us to rethink about some of the models and paradigms that we have, even in the field of Chicano studies, um, by reorienting, right, rethinking about or, or kind of re-approaching, right, um, Chicano and Chicano subjectivity through African diasporic sound and other kind of African diasporic kind of cultural production and African descent history, right, right in right. in Mexico, right. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I try to do with the chapter. Yeah, yeah, and that's such yeah. an um, an important point. And you know, the recent scholarship has has started to expand on on this notion and to ask you know these types of questions, right? What is it? What does it mean when we take seriously the African influence, right? In 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 cultural production on uh, you know of of chicanos and mexicanos and then also the the latino chicano influence in african cultural production right and it it really it it should prompt us to ask new questions mm-hmm. and think differently about these histories which are written separately uh mm-hmm. right and, and for the most part right scholarship has started mm-hmm. to change that but um mm-hmm. uh and just imagine i mean, i just like you know of course I'm always thinking about the present and and outside of academia you know what what would this mean if if actually so many more people knew of this, right? Knew that the the music that they loved uh, was mm-hmm. so deeply intertwined with these with, with aspects of um, uh, cultural fusion on, on on both sides. You know, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it really, I think it it really has the opportunity to to change how we look at each other, 
right? To t- mm-hmm. change how we look at our histories and understand ourselves in relation to others, which I think is uh, right. which is so critical. And, and so this chapter makes a, a very strong point uh, in doing that. Um, yeah. Well, I thank you so much for spending your time with us. Uh, I, I did want to give you a moment before we entirely, completely wrap up and just to speak of uh, on what it is that you're, you're working on now. This is a wonderful book. It was uh, it was published a few years ago, but it's still just so fresh. I mean, I read it a few years ago. I read it again recently for for this, and mm-hmm. it uh, you know it, again it, it still strikes uh, is very fresh and, and innovative. But what else are you are you doing now? Well, a number of different things, but since we're not running out of time, I'll mention like a, a couple. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm working on a couple of, of new book projects, and I'll mention one of them just again because of lack of time. But one of them does actually. Um, uh, take up sort of where, where the book kind of left off um, with the idea of brown soul. So I'm developing a book project um, around the sort of like concept and that goes back, you know, historically to one of the figures that I actually end with in the epilogue um, of uh, Gloria Rios and her kind of like rock and roll mm-hmm. and sort of like uh, rock history um, that actually if, if we kind of look at Gloria Rios and a figure like her's history. She actually comes through the music. She also was born in um, um, Sugarland, Texas, um, a small town in Texas. But her musical um, sort of environment is still with jazz and with swing and um, that era of music. So um, she's one figure, but I'm sort of interested in developing a book project um, around this notion of, of brown soul. So looking at a, a variety of different figures, but one of them that if, if the readers pick up the book, you'll recognize it as Gloria Rios. Um, mm-hmm. I'm also co-editing um, a collection of about 60 essays uh, with my co-editors, um, Lawrence Lafontaine Stokes at the University of Michigan and Nancy Raquel Mieleval. Um They're both professors. Nancy is at uh, University of Maryland. And so this will be a, a 60 essay book um, of keywords for Latina and Latino studies. So mm. your listeners might be interested. That will be coming out of New York University Press um, in 2016. Um, and then um, I'm organizing a conference that, again, in Southern California, some of your listeners might hear about. It's a big national Latino studies conference that will be happening in Pasadena in July of 2016. Um, wow. And the one thing that I'm working on this week, <laughs> just to bring it back to the <laughs> Is um, I'm doing the liner notes for for Quetzal, the LA ah, area uh-huh. big band. Um, they're producing a new album through the Smithsonian Folkways Records, um, and they finished that up. And so I was really honored. I did another set of liner notes for another um, CD, and they asked me to come back and do this one. I'm really really honored to to work with them again to do that. Yeah. So that's what I'm actually working on, like right now. Okay, <laughs> so awesome. that's kind of it. Yeah. Awesome. Things, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all, all those projects with us, and I can't wait to to see all of them, to read them, and 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 hear about them. So, and I'm sure our listeners as well. So, I want to thank you again uh, for your time, and it was it was just a pleasure, Deborah. So, I definitely encourage our yeah. our readers to you know, get this book. It is it is um, it is wonderful. It will you know it, it really changed my approach to music. Made me realize a lot of things that I didn't I didn't appreciate, and I, and I didn't you know really spend a lot of time thinking about it, of how I myself experience music and how that really you know affects my understanding of, of my own past but but also others yeah. too so yeah well i really thank you for giving me the opportunity now i always i think um you know when you write a book you put ideas out there you put arguments and they don't necessarily always fly with everyone not everyone's convinced and and that's that's in some ways like if there's something i could encourage 
the readers is like I'm less really um, kind of my emphasis is less on that and just like even um, what I like or what I hope the book does is, is at minimum introduce some of these figures you know to the reader mm-hmm. so you know the analysis argument part you know that hope you know if, if that's something that allows folks to think differently that's great but like the main thing I hope that the book does is kind of circulate you know the histories and performances of these women that's really what kind of makes my heart really happy you know when I see people kind of learning about you know Eva Gassa for the first time and you know things like that and maybe going on YouTube and seeing some of her performances that's what really hey that's what I did yeah yeah and so I thank you because I think that if if your readers can at minimum you know learn about them that that I think that is I'm really appreciative and grateful to you for the for the interview because I hope that it, it at least helps their their performances to circulate. So thank you so much for for allowing me to talk about it. Of course, and I appreciate you for bringing that up because that is uh, in the end I think why so many of us do what we do. That's why we write what we do, right? There's there's the mm-hmm. academic side where you know we, we need to structure arguments and make arguments and whatnot, mm-hmm. but really it boils down to telling stories that haven't been told, right? And, and mm-hmm. adding these people mm-hmm. to the canon, you know, if you will, showing how, the, you know, as you mentioned, you know, their, their histories and their lives, these are real people, right? How they, they really change yeah. how we should think about the past and understand it. So, yes, thanks again. And I look forward thank to our, our next conversation. Okay, right. thank you, DJ. Mm-hmm. Appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for tuning in to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and I hope you've enjoyed my conversation today with Deborah Vargas, author of Dissonant Divas in Chicano Music, The Limits of La Onda, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2012. I encourage you to get a copy of Professor Vargas's book, and you may do so by following the Amazon link on our New Books in Latino Studies page. If you'd like to contact us, please send us an email at newbooksinlatinostudies at gmail.com. You may also find us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you listen to us through iTunes, I encourage you to please rate and comment through there. Thank you.